From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. TV cops, they're always solving crimes. Even on The Shield, the bad, corrupt cops are solving crimes. Just come in every day and be like, hey guys, why don't we solve some crimes? Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is Dara Lind of ProPublica. I'm here with Vox's Matt Iglesias and Jane Koston. This week, we are going to be discussing a whole lot of things that if you haven't read, you should probably log off and read at your leisure. I understand that a lot of you are probably listening to this in a context in which you cannot easily log off and read some things. But we're going to be talking about what the New York Times is calling the 1619 Project, which is an editorial initiative that launched with a special edition on Sunday of the New York Times magazine uh, that commemorates the arrival of the first slave ship in the British colonies of the Americas. Right. And the reason why we make the note that you should read the package first um, and stop driving or walking the dog or doing whatever it is that you're doing um, and then listen to this podcast is that the responses to this package seem to be very much there is a response to the package itself. There is a response to the pieces within the package. And then there is a response that seems to be based largely on the New York Times doing this and to um, a transcript of a New York Times town hall that was in Slate. The issue being that a lot of people who were very upset about the New York Times town hall, which talked a lot about how the New York Times wants to talk more about race, um, and how, you know, if you're the Ted's Cruz of the world, uh, th- which he argues this is a scandal. And I'm using air quotes because that's the kind of scandal it is, um, because it's become kind of turned around in conservative media to be like, oh, the New York Times failed with the Mueller report. So now they're going to switch to race as if those two things cannot be reported at the same time or as if race is a made up thing that people aren't actually concerned about. But there seems to be a lot of people who did not follow the advice of our now colleague on the espionation side, Holly Anderson, an American hero, who when I worked for her, her, her major quote was, always do the reading. 
So we'd recommend that you you do the reading. Right. And we're going to have this discussion in a way that like you, it will not be necessary to have read it in advance. Um, but it's still something that you should absolutely. There's a lot there. There's right. a lot that we're not going to get the chance to get to. Uh, and also just, yeah, it's, it's generally a bad luck to uh, not. Ha- I think some of the critiques have made it very obvious that they're responding to an idea of what the Times is trying to do here rather right. than the Times' stated mission. And I think there is there are lots of critiques to be made of the Times' stated mission, right? Because the thesis of this project, if you're not familiar with it, is that, you know, the the cover of the special edition of the magazine posits that the America's true founding was in 1619, that this was where the seeds of what would become America were planted, that slavery and its legacy and the ideology of racism that was perpetuated to kind of give it moral license to happen have been not only, you know, central to America's understanding of itself, but like the thing that created America. Right. And that as a historical contention is like it's contentious. Right. And so there are various efforts throughout the package to kind of make that case in terms of American capitalism, in terms of American democracy, in terms of American culture. And as far as I'm concerned, if you actually read the package as a whole, it makes the most sense if you see it as a an experiment, right? Like right. what would happen if our narrative of American history were changed so that instead of this kind of essentialized, you know, every man who often turns out to be de facto a white dude was the hero of the American story. What if we specifically made black Americans the hero of the American story, the protagonist of the American story? Like, what if we thought about other institutions with regard to how they interacted with and reacted to black America? How would that change our understanding? And like, that is, I think, a way to appreciate what the project is doing. It's also not the way the Times itself is selling it. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I was going to say it, it, it's true. People should read things before criticizing them. It's also true. We we are all journalists. We have all published things. We all know, you know, people respond to headlines. People respond to lead graphs, right? And And like the statement here on the cover that, you know, out of slavery and the anti-Black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, diet and popular music, the inequities of its public health and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example it sets for the world is land and freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system. Uh, that's a very strong claim. It's a very strong and claim. I think this whole package has like tremendous virtues. I loved the profile of the history of the sugar industry in the United States. Wesley Morris's thing about music is great. Jamel Bowie's thing about voting rights and electoral systems is great. And and the opening essay by Nicole Hannah-Jones, which is essentially her efforts to reconcile her ambivalence toward America because she grew up, grew up understanding American racism with the patriotism that her veteran father had as both a personal essay and a kind of staking of claim is a really, really powerful piece of writing. And frankly, that's the that's what The Times is positing as the central mm-hmm. uh, essay right. in the collection. And some of the kind of discourse that is demonstrated people haven't done the reading has been people demonstrating they haven't read that. Right. One. I, 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 
I think that this always winds up being the weakest when it tries to literally yes. deliver on the promise of that statement. Like there's a very short uh, sketch by Mesra uh, Baradasan about the uh, evolution of the like dual tier banking system in the United States. She's super smart. She knows all about this. It's a brief squib. This is like a correct summary of how the Office of the Control of the Currency works and why it's a bad idea. The effort to say that like that's because of slavery like it's very unconvincing and like if anything it's it's backwards like if you just read her narrative it's it's pretty clear that what happened is that during the civil war we like moved away from fragmented banking to a national system anyway this is unimportant i think but it should be said like Things happen on two levels, right? Like there's like a big conceptual provocation here. And a lot of conservatives were duly provoked, right? And then, you know, some parts of it, I think, don't don't hold up that well, right? Or it holds up better as an intellectual exercise, right? right. Or, as to, as right. It holds say, up better as a genealogy, right? There, are, The stuff you're talking about, I found you know, a lot, including, frankly, in, in Wesley Morris's essay, that there's a lot of really strong, specific arguments that are made about both, you know, black contributions to history uh, and white supremacism and its legacy that are tied to theses that, while possibly valid, aren't demonstrated by those smart, specific insights. But I do think that you know, and I, we're going to talk about some specifics of the package, especially related to the study of American capitalism. But I do think, one, part of the effort of this package is, and I, I, I think that part of why it's so far-reaching and so big is because it is responding, in a sense, to how slavery has been almost, I think, you know, if anyone took AP U.S. history, in a weird way, slavery is decoupled from the overall American story. And so, you know, when you're learning about, like, the founding of the Bank of the United States, you're learning about different economic panics or something like that, there's kind of an understanding that there's, like, American history and Black American history, and that those are two separate entities. And, you know, personally, I'm, I'm engaging in a bit of a genealogical project myself, which is to attempt to figure out you know, where the black side of my family came from. And so we, I have gotten us back to about the 1890 census. Um, Sorry, that's very impressive. Well, see, it's actually super annoying because I can trace us back to a town in eastern Mississippi. And then at that point, it's basically like, and I am making a shrug emoji basically right now. And so I think that for it, it was interesting how um, the Newt's Gingrich of the of the world put this, which was essentially arguing. And I believe his exact quote was, that, you know, this is very important for African-Americans, but for most Americans, oh this is. And so right. the deliberate separation of African-American history from American history, I, th I think, is what this package is, in a sense, attempting to do, because you can't extricate the two. You cannot. And I think that there have just been a lot of little things recently where um, people, you know, people pointing out, like, people having married, like, getting married on slave plantations. Right. Or just, like, this understanding of African-American history in which the African-Americans have been taken out of it. So I think that there's kind of the macro of this package, which is to try to remedy that, to try and begin to answer, you know, generations of lost cause mythology about what slavery and Jim Crow actually looked like for individuals and to, again, continue the work of 
Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass, all both of whom made the arguments, specifically Frederick Douglass after he kind of left the arguments of William Lloyd Garrison, who argued that the Constitution was bullshit because it promoted slavery and we need something else, to basically say that, as Martin Luther King put it, that African-Americans have been given a bad check and we've been trying to cash this bad check for 400 years and that the efforts to do so have meant that African-Americans have been critical to forcing the United States to realize its potential and its promise. But I think that that, when we talk about this package, I think let's talk about the individual essays and the arguments it makes about how slavery impacted or didn't impact the formation of American capitalism, which I think is a really interesting argument, and we've been talking about that. But I think that there's kind of the macro and the micro of this package and what it's attempting to do. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to talk through a couple more of the things that people are clearly bringing to the table Mm -hmm. uh, with this, uh, some of which I think are a little more pernicious and perhaps more likely to be shared by our audience than they are to agree with Newt Gingrich. Um, I mean, first of all, there's kind of been there's been an outsized response from some uh, libertarians that has been very centered on the promise of America and the promises that the founders made. And I think that that like it makes sense. There has been in kind of libertarian political culture for a long time, a lot of emphasis on the founding documents as these great legal guarantors of liberty. And so thinking of those as somehow fatally compromised by the flaw of slavery means, you you know, that the thing that is to you most America and like the best thing about America is somehow fatally flawed. It does. Uh, it has shown something of a fault line between libertarians and, you know, like liberals in the left in terms of whether they're willing to talk about Thomas Jefferson owning and mistreating and, you know, having un- like what we would call child rape relationships right. with his slaves. Um, but it kind of it's it's been interesting to see people react in a, well, if you grant slavery such a central role in the American narrative, then it means that all of all of our fruit comes from the poison tree, right? This like actually very leftist right. reaction to like, well, if this is all true, then burn it all down while kind of the while the the strain that Nicole Hannah-Jones is pointing to and the liberal strain is, well, it was a false promise then. It can be made real. And so that's been an interesting dynamic. And the other yeah. thing that I want to point out with regards to slavery's role in American history in particular is it's very easy to dismiss kind of lost cause historiography and to say, the you know, the American Civil War wasn't really about tariffs. It was about slavery. And that can lead to a certain triumphalism. Eric Erickson was saying on Twitter this weekend that, like, we expiated the original sin of America. 500,000 Union soldiers died for it. We don't need, you know, like that's done. And on one hand, you can point to the legacy of, you know, racism and the systemic dismantling of like black power and wealth for, you know, a century plus after that. Um, but also you can, it's it's worth talking about the fact that I think a lot of us are taught in school, even at a fairly sophisticated level, that the South was at the time of the Civil War holding the nation back, that it was this backwards agrarian society uh, with an outdated honor culture that was also based on this obviously inhumane, you know, system of chattel slavery. And some of the economic work in particular, I think, is trying to point out that it's not that the North was tr- really America and the South was holding America back. And so when the North defeated the South, the whole slavery thing became just not something that like 
you know, was was kind of a dead end in American evolution. And it's treated in a sense, uh, there's, if you've seen the Ken Burns Civil War documentary, there's a moment where it shows footage of FDR recognizing the anniversary of Gettysburg, in which it is a very triumphalist, like, you know, brother fought against brother, but then we came back together. And you still see, you know, Union veterans and Confederate veterans sitting together. And it's kind of this version of the end of the Civil War in which ultimately the Civil War was good for both the North, who won, and the South, who were allowed back into the American project. But excluded from that are the former and freed slaves who were excluded from the American project by those efforts, by the failures of Reconstruction, by Andrew Johnson being an asshole. Well, and even if you turn this into a narrative of the good whites of the North vanquishing the bad whites of the South on behalf of the good black people. Right. That, I mean, A, there are some particular historiographical claims about why the the Civil War turned into a fight uh, right. over slavery. But also, like, the—and the reason I keep coming back to the economic side of this is that—to believe that relies on believing that there was a part of American wealth that was somehow morally pure. Mm-hmm. That it was not—that that slavery was not an important part of what got America to 1860. And that, I think, is— the specific claim that a lot of the essays in this package, at least what we have right now, are attempting to debunk. They're trying to say that what we understand to be the American economy has been shaped by not only been shaped by slavery, but like we wouldn't have American economic hegemony in the way we have now without it. And so it might be worth kind of digging into those claims a little bit more. Well, okay. Before we take a break and do that, because I'm going to take the unpopular position, I think, on that stance, where I think that this is really strongest is the stuff that's in here about American political development, right? That that's both like Nicole Hannah-Jones on sort of African-Americans as really the spear carriers of democratization in the United States, uh, Jamel on the... um, aspects of political backwardness that are in the United States, a theme running through uh, the, the essay on health care, right, I think is is really, really, really spot on, where it explains about not like some one moment where like the legacy of slavery is the reason the United States doesn't have a universal health care system, but that time and time and time again, both the nature of the sort of white supremacist one-party South and aspects of racial uh, dissension among working class Americans sort of undermine this project. Like that, I I think, is very uh, true and correct. And to me, it somewhat actually cuts against the thesis where it is Matthew Desmond channeling Ed Baptist and Sven Beckert, because to an extent, there's only 100% of the pie to explain. And so, like, it can't... both be that, like, things are just following patterns that were set long, long ago, but also that actually there are popular initiatives that can't pass because of electoral dynamics that, that, that were set up in a weird way. So I, I want to take a break, and then I want to I want to delve into this, this sort of economic piece. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. 
And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. So I read uh, Ed Baptist's book, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, when it first came out, because uh, it came out, I, I actually, I met him right around the time it was published uh, at Cornell. I was there in a thing. Uh, I found him incredibly impressive. Uh, I was really interested in what he had to say. Uh, his book came out. I read it. Uh, I wrote it up for Vox. Uh, I thought it was like really cool, hot shit. Um, there's a lot going on in this book, uh, which to some extent can now get reduced to a narrow quibbling about like four things he says in it. Um, there's like, great- I, I have a copy of the book here and it is, it's very dense. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot a, happening here. It's a, it's a big book. And, and Sven Beckert's book, Empires of Cotton, is, is even bigger uh, and, and more ambitious in scope. But among other things, uh, these books, this this genre of book makes the claim that slave-grown cotton was like the essential foundation of American prosperity. And I have come to believe in subsequent years, reading a bunch of criticisms of this, that that's really not true. Um, you can see, I mean, just as a, as a layperson, if you know how GDP works, there's a section of the book where he explains that that cotton represented half of American economic output. Um, and that's that's just not right. It was 5% of American output, um, which to be clear is a lot, right? The entire house building industry in the United States is not quite 5% of output. And I think it's like common sense that if all of house building went away, that would be a big deal. So like you shouldn't dismiss anything at 5%, but by the same token, like 50% is is too much, right? And there's a number of claims along those lines, all of which I think tend to founder on the fact that like we don't need to speculate as to what would happen if slave-grown cotton went away because it did, in fact, go away, right? And the industrial economy was fine 
right? And it's not to dismiss slavery as unimportant historically because people were, in fact, enslaved uh, on these, these, these cotton camps, right? But there's a counterfactual question, right? To say that, like, the foundation of American prosperity was slavery in this weird way echoes the rhetoric of the slave owners themselves. Right, who made the case repeatedly throughout the, the the 19th century to the North, right? Initially, quite persuasively, their line was like, "You may not like this, but you need it." Right, right. We are bound together in this incredible system that is delivering prosperity for everyone. And a big part of the story of the growth of anti-slavery sentiment in the North was. Northern whites coming to believe that that analysis was incorrect and that, like, they didn't have to like slavery. Right. Right. And it's true. After the end of slavery, the economy continued to function just fine. And the whole thing was like a monstrous crime that was done for the benefit of a pretty narrow slave owning elite who profited from it enormously. And there's a complicity of everybody that it was allowed to flourish for generations, but not an actual like causal dependency. And I don't quite understand what the belief is that putting this like strong slavery led to American prosperity thesis, like what political work that's supposed to do. Because I understand what political work like the Mississippi state legislature thought it was doing when they said their position is aligned with slavery because to attack slavery is to attack all of commerce and industry. Going back to the burn it all down stuff we were talking about earlier, like if you believe that capitalism is inherently evil and you believe that American capitalism is specifically evil because it was built on the backs of chattel slaves, then like that bolsters your political argument that we need to destroy capitalism. We cannot tame it. It's interesting because I think that some of this plays into, you know, I, I was particularly interested in like the piece that was about sugar and how like the economics of slavery, because I think that that's been part of, you know, I talked about earlier how this package is attempting kind of to respond to lost cause mythologizing. And some of that seems to be like, well, you know, the South eventually would have had to give this up. Eventually, you know, cotton wasn't going to be enough, even with the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney. And I think in some senses it's trying to respond to that by making the argument like, no, that's not what this was about. But I think that you've brought up, and we've got a couple of papers on this subject, that that that's not entirely factual. Well, it's, I mean, one thing that's interesting, right, is there's like two different like historiographies here, right? Like there's one tradition which held that slavery was somehow like, it wasn't working. It was right. unprofitable. Right. Well, it's inefficient. Right. I believe and, is the argument. Yeah, and this goes, and this is what I think has has led to the folk understanding of the South was holding America back. Blah 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 blah. Right, and then so to an extent, Baptist and Beckert are responding to that like old Dunning historiography, but when they do that, they leap over. The economic history work that was done in the 60s and 70s and 80s, which already overturned that conclusion. And so they're now in this like weird dialogue where people on both sides of the argument are like pounding the table about the fact that slavery was profitable. 
was both profitable and cruel. Yes. Right. Because this is because the original correction, at least, is and this is relying heavily on some academic reviews of of Baptist's book. But, you know, it seemed to me that getting from getting a sense of the historiography that there was initially the slavery was profitable because and one of the reasons for that was that slaves were treated better than we thought because they were seen as, you know, potentially productive workers, which then had the correction of no, 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 no. Slavery was profitable and slaves were productive. But it is also true that slaves were living under extremely cruel conditions and that the productivity was not necessarily a function of slaves being treated well. Also, that slaves being individuals, uh, for our libertarian friends, uh, with individuals with some agency, participated in sometimes plantation-wide work slowdowns or just intentionally didn't do things because of, you know, slavery and not being particularly jazzed about it. Well, so, I mean, that's an interesting sort of like debate within the debate, right? Right. Because then another thing that happened where there was a big social history movement to sort of emphasize slave resistance, right? And Baptist, although in uh, uh, like politics, like always aligns himself with like the most left progressive viewpoint, his book is actually a little dismissive of slave resistance, right? I mean, he wants you to believe that sort of slave driver torturing was extremely effective and that they basically had the whole thing on lockdown. And, you know, that's an interesting question, right? There's a there's a, a book um, by a guy named Wright uh, called The Poverty of Slavery. And, you know, one of the arguments he makes is that when you're talking about this efficiency question, you have to think about the externalizing of the enforcement apparatus, right? That part of what slave owners did was they convinced the government to do a lot of slave catching for them, right? So in all cases, right, like in any economic model, it's always efficient if you can get the government to like do half of your job for you. And so like obviously the downside to like employing forced laborers is that they're not going to want to do what you say, right? right? And then if you can get the state to like come in and catch the runaways and bring them back to you and let you actually, you know, all this stuff, right? Like, sure, that's good for you right um but but the question of of how does this like build prosperity compared to a system in which people get paid for their work and then the police are not running around like you know arresting you all the time right so i continue to believe that like the common sense view that like the right thing to say about slavery is that it was bad is both more accurate and, like, does more useful political work than this, like, slightly odd bank shot view that slavery was the key to breaking the Malthusian cycle of human poverty. But then it's also good that we don't do it anymore because it's cruel. So, I mean, I think that the question this leaves me with is some of Desmond's essay in this collection and I think some of the stuff that is a little bit underdeveloped in the debate over Baptist's book is the question of what this means for Northern prosperity in the antebellum period, right? Like, there is an argument or there are pieces of an argument um, that, you know, as, as I think we discussed at the beginning, like, don't necessarily totally prove the thesis, but certainly offer some suggestive evidence that the financialization of the economy was led by the slaving sector. Right. And that does seem like an interesting argument that even if you don't have to believe it was 
you know, that I think I think that that plus the contributions that have been documented of the cotton growing South to, you know, the economic prosperity that the U.S. had in 1860, like, as far as I'm concerned, the most demonstrative argument in that direction is England, which had at that time already outlawed slavery, was considering intervening on behalf of the South because that's where their economic interests were. Um, But, you know, I think that that the kind of question of, well, if America is now a post-industrial economy that has led the world in financializing its economy and, you know, allowing people to speculate and access credit and build their wealth based on financial instruments, then isn't the South's role in doing that based on human labor an important thing to talk about? And isn't the North's role in growing its own economy because it was the capitalist, you know, it was both the industrial and capitalist driver of that a worthwhile thing to talk about? I also think it's worth noting that the relationship between the North and South when it comes to slavery, I think occasionally gets kind of understated. I think that there's this understanding that once you hit the Mason-Dixon line, like the economic structures had nothing to do with one another, which isn't true. You know, there were slave auctions on Wall Street and the, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act encompassed all of America. And so that's why, you know, if you read about Frederick Douglass's own journey, uh, one of the challenges he had while doing abolitionist work throughout the North and talk, you know, he's going to northern Ohio, he's in northern Illinois, is that at any one time there were you know federal slave catchers who were both very interested and very willing to take him back into bondage and i think it's also worth noting that when we talk about the financial instruments that benefited from slavery you know we're talking about insurance companies insurance companies that some of which ex- still exist today some of the same companies but i also think you know i think it's a worthwhile project to recognize that just because something was financially inefficient does not make mean it was financially unimportant. Um, I think that one thing I've been thinking about is, in general, I, I'm interested in how we would talk about this issue if this were taking place in another country. And the best comparison I can come up with in my head, though it's not a, a perfect one, obviously, is how uh, czarist Russia dealt with the issue of serfdom. And so when Catherine the Great released the first iteration of her nikaz, which was an effort to kind of constitutionalized law in a sense that was borrowing from Europe in a way that would, you know, work for Russia, which there were, the czars following Peter the Great spent a lot of time trying to be like, we're European. And then the people of Russia were like, eh, less so. But when she was talking about, okay, and now it's time to free the serfs, and landowners were like, absolutely not. We would, no thank you. Because at that time, you know, there were landowners in Russia who had as many as 150,000 serfs on their land. Because serfdom was a very different project from slavery, but somewhat similar. And so I think that, you know, whether or not we can look back and look at the South and say, like, this was an economically inefficient model, and it was also inhumane and brutal— they thought it was very important. And their entire understanding of not just their economic life, economic life, but their social and sociopolitical life was dependent on this institution. And so I think it's worth noting just because it wasn't like a good, you know, I, slavery wasn't effective. It wasn't efficient. It was, you know, they the part of why the South lost the war was because of kind of the lack of economic 
availability of resources that the North was able to have. Now, granted, the South held on a lot longer than a lot of people in the North thought they would. But I think that what they thought at the time about this institution, which by the beginning of the 1800s had changed from an institution that they kind of recognized was on its way out to starting to see the John C. Calhoun argument of like, no, this is good. This is the basis of everything. This is what we should be doing. And so I think that how Southerners and specifically Southern elites understood this institution is just as useful as our understanding of the actual economics of the institution. I mean, I think that's true, but I don't think that that I think that that doesn't necessarily give us much in the argument of what should that does open you up to the critique of, well, yes, it was important to them and then they lost the war. And so, you know, we get to like jettison that from the, you know, the ship of history, Mm -hmm. Um, which like to demonstrate You know, I think to demonstrate that there wasn't necessarily a rupture once chattel slavery ended, there wasn't a rupture once the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Mm -hmm. Acts were passed. That's the work that has, I think, successfully been done on white liberals, as Matt has written over the last several years. Right. And that, I think, is part of where this project is coming from to kind of ground that in a more specific understanding and to do it in a way that doesn't actually center those white liberals feeling bad about things, but in fact, like, centers America in a way that's different from the way we're used to thinking about it. I agree with that. I just, in the spirit of centering things uh, and also talking about everything that went wrong after the Civil War, a a story that I think it would be um, interesting to tell, I shouldn't say would be interesting to tell, it's a story that has been told, a story that I think deserves more attention, is African-American farmers who, for a brief time, had actual land that they owned and cultivated it, and the fact that it went perfectly well, right, until that was taken away from them, right? But this is where I think the economics and the social history comes together, because part of the reason why freed black farmers were essentially abandoned by their once-upon-a-time northern allies was a sort of gut-level belief in the economic efficacy of the plantation system and an excessive skepticism that small, free black farmers could, in fact, produce the agricultural commodities that the country needed. To the best of my understanding, like, that is wrong. You know, that like it was not just like morally wrong that people didn't get their 40 acres and a mule, but like there was an analytical error and that the project of establishing smallhold farms in the South could have been a successful solution, right, to for people. And it was a solution that was not pursued and that that, as much as anything else, is the origin of a lot of ongoing problems, right, that the white North sort of walks away from the situation in part quietly thinking that now that they've sort of won the argument about the West and the railroads, right, there were a lot of there were a lot of northern concerns that were like related to slavery but didn't touch at the core of black rights, right? So they got their way on all this other stuff. They got their transcontinentals, they got their their homestead act in Kansas, and then they were like, fine, right? You guys, the old masters, are the only ones who know how to make the South work. And they turned it over to them. And, and that's, you know, really not true. Like, when there was experimentation with Black-owned farms and Black property ownership and Black politics in the South, uh, which we do get some of in this package, like, it was, it was going okay and it was mm-hmm. violently suppressed. 
and and continues to you know the the kind of disposition of black farmland in particular continues to this day. There's actually a really good Atlantic piece that just right. came out by Van Newkirk on this, which shows like the involvement of the federal government yeah. in these efforts. And then this also comes back to uh, the the sugar essay, which I think is kind of the like consensus favorite of the people in this room by Khalil Gibran Muhammad in the 1619 Project, which ends with a white farmer who has been farming on land that has been allowed to be taken from black farmers, referring to one of them as that. Walsh boy and saying that they're that the reason that they lost their land is because they're terrible farmers, uh, which is certainly an interesting note to have from a person who was currently alive and did not, in fact, feel uncomfortable saying this, these things to a journalist in 2019. Uh, but we should probably stop talking about economic history and start talking about white papers. Yes. Okay, a listener emailed me this paper, Why Do Gun Murders Have a Higher Clearance Rate Than Gunshot Assaults? It's by Philip Cook, Anthony Braga, Brandon Turchin, and Lisa Barrow. And he said, you're going to love this one. And I do. I do love it. So this looks at a, a kind of basic fact. That they're looking specifically at Boston, but it's a stylized fact in all of American police departments, which is that the clearance rate for murders is not that high, uh, as we have discussed before, but it is a lot higher than the clearance rate for non-fatal shootings. Right. And this is one of these things where if you think about it, like the crime of like, I shoot you. Right. It's the same whether you die or not. But the investigative response is very different. And often, in fact, the difference between a fatal and non-fatal gunshot assault is the skill and trauma response of the responding doctors. Yeah, just were were ambulances close and stuff like that. Right. And how you would go about figuring it out is the same. Right. Who yes. who did the shooting? But there's a big difference in the amount of police resources that are dedicated to it. A murder is a bigger deal than a non-fatal shooting. And they show that so they're a little bit more than twice as likely to uh, solve a gun murder than a, than a non-fatal shooting. And that the bulk of that is the result of sustained investigative effort in homicide cases made after the first two days, uh, which is to say that, you know, uh, for both kinds of crimes, they do a kind of initial, you know, look around, right? Um, see if there's eyewitnesses readily available, stuff like that. And if there are, in a, in a large minority of cases, you get a sort of easy, quick closure, right? And then for non-fatal shootings, they tend to just drop it if that doesn't work. Whereas for fatal shootings, they keep working on it. And, you know, it, it's hard to solve cases without those initial eyewitnesses, but it it tends to work. There's a solid 20% of the time when sort of continuing investigative effort coaxes out some new witnesses or other evidence and they're able to solve the crime. Uh, but for, for non-fatal shootings, they don't put that in. Um, so the basic like policy takeaway is that if police departments put more resources into trying to solve crimes, they would, in fact, solve more crime. Well, it's also interesting because a lot of times in non-fatal gun assaults, like there's every evidence that the person who commits the non-fatal gun assault will go on to commit a fatal gun assault. Because again, as you know, the reason in some of these cases why it is non-fatal is because even if it is a horrific injury, being at, you know, access to medical treatment and being close to a hospital or something like that. And also the fact that trauma medicine has grown and improved with leaps and bounds. So there are a lot of gunshot wounds that would have been fatal 20 years ago that are no longer. I would be curious to see more research into this because I think that there's an understanding of, obviously, there's a difference between a 
murder or gun fatality and a gun injury. But I'd be interested in seeing how police think of of these as because I think that there's some sense of, you know, if you are shot, but you still live, that there's a sense of like how you play into the story is very different than if you don't live, if that makes sense. So, I mean, I think of this as there are a couple of strains that have developed in kind of like the hot tactics in urban policing over the last couple of decades. And one of them is the idea that violence is hyper-concentrated, right? As you were saying, Jane, like it's not, and it's not just like people who commit those assaults, but like, frankly, the person on the on the victim end of a non-fatal gun assault is themselves disproportionately likely to have been involved in violence or to be involved in violence down the road, that kind of victims and perpetrators are this very closely knit network of a few people. And so that would seem to militate toward putting so much more effort into non-fatal gun assaults because that means that you can prevent the fatal gun assault down the road. But then there's the kind of top-line political, you know, whether you blame it on comp stat or whether you blame it on the kind of political incentives that local police and local politicians have, murder rates are seen as a proxy for violence. Violent crime rates are not. And so it makes a lot of sense that trying to get the murder rate down or trying to put people in prison for murder is a bigger political department imperative. I think the way that you reconcile this with the kind of line cop view is, frankly, the prevailing, and we've talked about this when we talk about policing, the prevailing attitude among line cops is you want to get home safe. It's not you want to get home not dead. It's you don't want to be the victim of any potential attack. And so going into areas that are more violent, going into areas where you fear there's more hostility toward cops is always going to be a bigger lift. When you have an organizational imperative to, like, track down murderers, that might counterbalance it. But without the organizational imperative, you're not necessarily going to bust your butt talking to people who don't want to talk to you and who are probably armed. Yeah, although, I mean, some of this is just a a resource allocation question across departments, right? I mean, in a conventional police department organization, you have, like, investigators and you have— people doing security policing, right? And the sort of trend in American policing has been to very, very heavily weight uh, preemptive security policing type stuff and to not, like, not do investigations. But, you know, it's like TV shows are, like, usually about detectives, right? But most police officers are not detectives. Um, And it's probably appropriate to have many police officers not be detectives and also many police officers who are detectives. But like what the ratio that that should be in your city is sort of up for up for grabs and up for question. Right. And there has been, you know, like not a lot of political emphasis on the idea of clearing cases and solving crimes, which would militate toward more detectives, probably more emphasis. I mean, just like more stuff like you see on TV, frankly, like more labs, more like stuff that would go into solving crimes. And at the margin, either just like bigger police department budgets or fewer uh, cops driving around. And, you know, it's interesting to me because it feels to me, at least, that the like post-Ferguson policing discourse has gotten itself into a dead end where no actual useful reforms have been 
um, achieved that are accomplishing anything that reformers really wanted, but well, where there is incredible I, animosity. I'd like to note, one, yeah. what we learned from Ferguson in part as part of the Department of Justice study was that part of it was about policing and part of it was how policing was being funded, which was right. essentially off of bullshit tickets, like right. nonstop yeah, there, bullshit there has ticketing. Been, there has been, I think, Push. The, there's. I think that there's been when we talk about like, and, which has ultimately led to a reduction in like cash bail measures. Although right. that's not actually the same thing. No, right. it is not. But I think that there's an understanding. Like what people wanted after Ferguson and in general with kind of reform, police reform. And you know, we we're just getting news yesterday that the man who uh, murdered Eric Garner in New York has finally been fired, which the response from the police union was like, policing is over. If you can't choke somebody, why even get in the game? Right. Um, but I think that there, you know, what people wanted was, yes, solve crimes. Yes, prevent murders. But also do not treat an entire population as if they are in themselves criminals for being them. And so I think, you know, when you hear about kind of the th- the thin blue line and like, you know, they're, they're the only thing stopping outright panic in the streets. I think that's what the response has been. And I think that there's been, you know, when you, you get into the back and forth about people being, but, but, you know, in the early 1990s, people wanted more policing in this neighborhood. I'm like, yes, they wanted more policing. They did not necessarily want the type of policing that wound up being done. Right. And so I think the the kind of reforms and you know the concerns about kind of police people relations have been less related you know it hasn't necessarily been about like we don't want people to be out there stopping murders or solving gun homicides or gun injuries it has been about you know when people are getting stopped and fined nonsensically it is the same police officers who are allegedly investigating those other crimes also Right, right, right. I mean, I'm just saying I have not seen an example. I have seen a lot of like takes and a lot of <laughs> activism and a lot of stuff like that. What I have not seen is like a substantial city that people will now look at and be like, yep, like they really made big strides here, right? That this Eric Garner situation is a case in point, right? Where like you had the outrage, you had the protest, you had a years-long process, you had ultimately no legal consequences for the officer, then you had further pressure, you have the officer being fired, you have the police union immediately going berserk, and then you even have the police chief doing this like weird wink-wink thing where he's like, if I'd still been an officer, I would have been outraged by my firing. Yeah, you know, we could all make mistakes, which is uh, but I mean, but, an interesting but, way of but, I mean, that. But, but that goes to the incredibly rickety political structure that Bill de Blasio has built around this, where he is like, formally speaking, on the side of reform, but in a practical sense, is like really, really, really worried about a Baltimore-style police strike. You know what I mean? Because like in a practical sense, what happened in Baltimore, where the city officials really did go all in on their need to be consequences, like that did not have the result that they wanted, right? What you got in Baltimore was a, a kind of a police strike, a skyrocketing crime rate. Nobody feels good about that outcome either. And like ultimately, somebody needs a way forward that is improves on like community demands for better treatment, but in some kind of way that is acceptable to 
police officers such that you can actually do it rather than this New York type situation where they're not like creating reform there. Yeah, I mean, I think the particular solutions that I think we have plenty of examples of solutions that build community trust while reducing crime or without increasing crime. I think that what I our hometown seen, has seen some some really yeah. some optimistic results from those efforts. Right. What I don't think we've seen are stories where both community trust and police officer morale go up. And that, I think, is what if we're going to be dealing with a world where police officers view their ability to do their job as the key to morale and are frustrated and like see attempts at, you know, high profile accountability like the Pantaleo firing as blows to morale like that, that does pose a problem for crime going forward. And that's kind of a a place where and, and you know, I maybe people should like send us some emails if they know <laughs> of things. But that's where I think I'm not seeing those kind of two pieces moving together. Right. Because, I mean, with the Pantaleo case, you have a clear instance instance in which a judge said, like, you lied about using a chokehold. They showed him video of him using this chokehold after he described what a chokehold was. And he said, no, that's not a chokehold. And they said, oh, that's what happened. And so I think, you know, we need like an understanding of what police work involves and how police interact with the people whom they are supposed to be the servants of. But I think that they often think of them as being the policed. Yes. I think that is a shift that needs to take place. Not, you know, when we're talking about the police officers being able to, quote unquote, do their jobs. Well, what what are their jobs and what are they not being permitted to do? Yeah, I should also mention, because I think we didn't talk about it before, but the, the essay in the 1619 Project about criminal justice, I think, is very persuasive on this point, that it's a question of like, like, what is the job, right? right? Who, yes. who are the clients? Yes. Who does the law protect, right? And that this is very fundamentally shaped um, by, you know, racism. But I think importantly, not by racism in the sense of like, like, ooh, yuck prejudice, right? But of like a deeply entrenched social system that was about treating a very big share of the population as not citizens of the country. And with that, we've probably given – we're going to give you a lot of reading and show notes. Um, Please do the but, reading. Yeah. I mean, or don't do the reading and don't talk about it. Yeah. One of those two. Yep. But not a weird combination of the two. If you have done the reading, you should definitely participate in the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, and send us some emails. Yeah, send us some emails. Uh, okay. Uh, thanks uh, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds will return on Friday.